0: This is the ResetMD podcast. We welcome you to join in on our conversations with fellow physicians. Many of us in medicine reach a point in our careers where we want to make a change. Hit a reset button. Wouldn't it be nice to have some guidance from colleagues who'd been there too and have pearls of wisdom to share? These well-being conversations will cover a range of topics, Thriving in Medicine, Physician Health, Burnout Prevention, Work-Life Integration, Practice Optimization, Advocacy, and Support. And we'll just have some fun doing it. Listen in and start your Reset. Welcome back to the reset MD Podcast. Today, you have the pleasure of sitting in on a conversation with Dr. Lita Fatimi, who's one of the co-creators of our podcast, with Dr. Elizabeth Lawrence, who goes by Liz. She's the Assistant Dean for Professional well-being, the Chief Wellness Officer, and a Professor of an Internal Medicine at the University of New Mexico School of Medicine.
1: Would you tell us some about yourself, Liz? Sure. I am a general internist, I grew up in New York City and met my husband on a blind date there, and he happened to have grown up in New Mexico. So, uh, even though I'm a New Yorker at heart, we've been in New Mexico for close to 30 years now. I came here for my residency training and then have been practicing general internal medicine here ever since. I got involved in wellness in around 2013 when I burned out myself in private practice and have been very involved in wellness at UNM since then.
2: Yeah, yeah. And you've been a pioneer in, in, uh, in the field at UNM um, and uh, nationally as well. Um, I thought it would be really great to hear Um, your reset story, because you've, you've told me some about it from private practice coming out of it, and um, how you took some time off. Um, I think it would be great for our listeners to know that everything is possible, and that we all go through difficult times. Um, I've, I've been burnt out myself uh, pretty severely, Um, but that there is, there is, ways to get out of it i think that's also very important to know Um, and let's let's hear from your story and and learn the wisdom that you gained um from from your experience
1: sure Um, i was in private practice in santa fe from i think 2006 to 2013 i may have the dates a little wrong Um, And my last year or two in private practice, I really was feeling more and more emotionally exhausted, um, really just feeling I had nothing left to give, which of course is one of the cardinal signs of burnout. Um, I was in a two-person practice, so we were really dinosaurs in this age where everyone's working for large corporations or hospitals. So it was my partner and I, and uh, my partner, and me. And then we had a staff of six or seven, and we also had a wonderful nurse practitioner who worked with us. Um, but we were responsible, uh, my partner and I, for everything from updates to the EMR, to the toilet getting clogged, to employing seven people, to uh, really just keeping a roof over our head. And oh yes, we also ran a medical practice and saw patients. Uh, I don't have a lot of entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, I like to be able to take care of my patients and uh, really don't like the business side of medicine at all. Um, But that's where we were. And uh, it did offer the opportunity for a fair amount of autonomy in how we paced our patients and how we were able to see and care for them. And we, I think, gave a very high level of care. But because of the many demands um, as an owner or part of, what's the word I'm looking for, a shareholder in a practice, um, you know, we shared the responsibility, um, taking care of a lot of very sick patients here in Santa Fe, including many physician patients. Uh, and then at the same time, having two middle school age children, and two parents who were dying, um, it really just became too much. Uh, and I didn't recognize that in time. So I would find myself crying on my way to work and just being really discouraged. It, um, interesting, when I was in a room with a patient, I usually felt really good. But it was sort of the hassle of everything outside that of that relationship, the documentation, the follow-up the pace, the unexpected phone calls and so on that really wore me down. And I was in a really fortunate place uh, professionally and uh, personally. um, My husband and I could afford for me to take some time off of work. And so I left private practice knowing that I loved my patients, knowing my patients loved me, knowing that there was a huge need for general internists and primary care here in Santa Fe, but not feeling I could fulfill that need anymore. And that was a really great frustration to know I had the skills and the passion to do it, but just couldn't do it in a way that was sustainable. Um, And so I did take six months off when I left practice, I wasn't sure I'd go back. And uh, during that six months, not only did I devote time to the family, both my children and parents, uh, actually, I think at that point, maybe my, mom had died. Uh, Gosh, and I I guess my dad had died too. And so it was those last few years that they had been sick. Um, But there was the uh, emptying out of the home my mom had been in for 40 years and all the things that come with uh, closing out a parent's life. Um, and so uh, I took time for family, and then I also began reading about physician well being. I had some clues because I had a large number of physicians in my practice that our work was bad for us and that we were lousy patients and lousy at taking care of ourselves. Um, but I didn't really appreciate that there was a whole burgeoning field of physician well being uh, work that was started by um, Mark uh, Linzer, Tate Shanafelt, Um Colin West, Lisette Derby. uh, And so really impressive work. And it was really uh, validating to see that I wasn't the only person in the world who was experiencing the frustrations. I really didn't appreciate how widespread burnout was. And I really found solace in the literature and reading about other physician experiences and talking to other physicians. And eventually, uh, Because of the time off and the dedicated family time and the energy I got from really feeling like, oh, my gosh, this is a systems issue. This is a national issue of physicians not being able to succeed in practice. I felt energized to try to make a difference. And I uh, was really fortunate in that I had previously worked at the University of New Mexico. I'd done my residency training there and joined the faculty uh, before I left for private practice. And so I called some of my former colleagues and asked if I could do something around physician well-being. And um, lo and behold, uh, I started, I think, with 0.1 or maybe 0.2 FTE, and then I am where I am today.
2: Wow. That's incredible. That's incredible. And can you tell us a little bit about the, you mentioned the six months that you decided to take off. I think that takes a lot of courage, um, you know, in a physician's life to say, okay, you know, this is the time I need off. First of all, recognition of it and having the courage to, to take it off. Um, I think a lot of people feel stuck because they feel like they can't do that um how did you come about that how you know of course you 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 know the crying and the sadness from from all of the burden that you were feeling the overwhelm that you were feeling of course and those are all the whispers until it comes to a point of I can't anymore um but how did you how did you transition into that
1: I, I think that's a great question and again um I had options that may not uh have been available to everyone. I feel very privileged. I feel very grateful. Um, My husband and I and my family could afford for there to be just one income. I wasn't a single mom. I wasn't um, the only breadwinner. So, so there was um, financially an option. And I know for some people that isn't a possibility. And then professionally, I felt that I had, um, practiced from 95 when I started my residency to 2013. New Mexico is a small state uh, and I feel like I had established myself as a caring, compassionate, capable physician. Mm -hmm. And um, I felt that if I wanted to come back, there would be a need for me and a need for a primary care physician. And so I didn't have the fear of not being able to return to the workforce. I did have six months to a year in mind because of the difficulty of explaining gaps on one's CV or needing to report to the board if one takes off more than a certain amount of time and so on. So I I wasn't imagining years away and I also would worry about losing my skills. So I had a concrete time. Well, I I say I had a concrete time in mind. That may be a little bit of rewriting of history because I didn't know I was going back. But um, I think I thought if I am going back, this would be the easiest way to do it. So professionally, I felt I could do it and get another job. And also professionally, I wasn't on a clear career path the way many are. You know, I started in academic medicine. I left for private practice. It wasn't as though I was you know, uh, on my way up the ranks in academic medicine, I wasn't eager to become an administrator in a big hospital or Mm -hmm. uh, continue owning a practice. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't, you know, I I think some people get set on tracks, research tracks, educational tracks, academic tracks, uh, leadership tracks, Mm -hmm. and it can be hard to step off. And I, I think it might've been harder to reclaim that place uh if i were on a track but i wasn't so i was really fortunate um i also have a history of depression I'm pretty serious and the burnout and the depression overlapped and i really got to a point where i it, i just knew it was too unhealthy to continue so i wish i could say i was wise enough to say this would be a good idea for me to take time off um but i think my hand had to be pushed a little by really a need for self-care.
2: Right, 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 right. And to recognize it is incredible because oftentimes what we see is that people do wait just too long until they truly don't see any way differently than it can be, and then they're done, right? And that's what we see, unfortunately, in you know, terminal depression cases that um, we have to face you know, suicide, um, unfortunately, in our profession at such high rates. Um, You know, one thing you mentioned, uh, not having fear, right, that's so big and that's, um, I see us in, professionals in general, you know, the, the type of person we are to begin with, we're afraid of a lot of consequences. And in medicine, especially, we're constantly being told, oh, you're not writing this right in your note. You're not, you know, did did you do this right by the patient? And we're constantly having to think about the other before ourselves. And we have the fear of not doing it right. Um, Being in that space of not having fear is, you know, and, and the financial freedom, right? Feeling free enough to make a decision like that is so magnificent um, to be able to, to have that space. Um, and you know, the other thing you mentioned was your family. Um, you know, tell me about that, like your, your husband at the time, you know, was he totally okay with you taking the time off? And I'm sure, of course, you know, but just, you know, hearing the story, I think is very interesting.
1: Sure. So uh, this guy who I met on a blind date in 1985 uh, has been with me since uh, I took my MCATs. I mean, before I took my MCATs. And I had taken six years off between college and medical school. And that's when we met seven years during that seven year period. So he was with me when I started studying for the MCATs, when I took them, when I applied to medical school, when I was accepted and when we went. And um, he's been tremendously supportive Throughout, uh, I personally would not have wanted to live with me as a medical student or a resident, um, and so really kudos to him. Um, I uh, in my last year of medical school, we got pregnant, and I had my son, and so I started um, internship with a seven-month-old, eight-month-old. Um, And that was not a great plan, um, because it was great to have an infant during fourth year of medical school, because there's a lot of freedom there. But we were doing internship in a city that was new to us, Uh, although my husband's family was here, his dad was very ill at the time, and his parents weren't in a position to offer us childcare assistance, and we really didn't know anybody else. So um, I don't recommend that. Uh,
0: <laughs> I can't
2: imagine, you can't, you can't imagine um, how you went through that.
1: Oh, my um, God. But we did it. And um, <clears throat> and, and I mentioned that because um, I think being a physician has a huge impact, not only on our own burnout, but it impacts our family. And so, so for a good chunk of residency, we didn't have a lot of success with childcare, or hiring nannies or this or that for a good part of residency, I would work and I'd come home and my husband would go to work and he'd come home and I'd go to work. And that does not make for a healthy relationship. And it took us a long time to kind of recover from that. Um, And, or I would get home after being on call and feel entitled to sit and stare into space and be exhausted. And he would feel like he's just been running around after a toddler uh, without help for 30 hours. And he deserved to sit around and stare into space, and this was of course before duty hours or regulations and so there really were hundred hour weeks and um, you know when when we both felt entitled and unable to give to each other that's hard anyway somehow uh during uh my second year of residency, I had another kid and um and that was wonderful uh, and so I finished residency with two little ones, and all of this to say that. I've really been practicing for my children's entire lives, uh, much of that time, part-time, um, but still uh, in a two-career family with two little ones and not a whole lot of family help uh, around. And um, why am I getting here? Oh, because you asked me about my family. So it really um, was, and, and, and I should just say I would do crazy things to prioritize the kids, like get to work at four in the morning so I could come home in time to pick them up at school or you know whatever it was uh, and working in the evenings or whatever I could do uh, so that I was with them during their awake hours and having good time with them. So um, by the time 2012, 2013 rolled around, I was exhausted and I was ready not to be a working mom. And I was ready to be more available to my kids uh, who were growing fast. And How old were they at the time? Um, actually, my son had already left for college mm-hmm. uh, and my daughter was in 10th grade. Mm-hmm. So they were older, um, but I think it was still helpful to be around and available.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, you said... Um Somehow, uh, your husband and you got got through the, you know, the the points of, I mean, there's so much going on. The overwhelm with everything that you guys were going through without family support, which I can't even begin to imagine. I have my parents here, who uh, are true caretakers of our children after us. Um, and with that, there are days that were like, oh my gosh, like, this is just a lot, you know, um, how did you guys, um, evolve through that? You know, and you said that affected your relationship for a while. Um,
1: uh, I think, um, we're both very dedicated as I'm sure everyone is to the kids and their well-being was the priority. And so um I, I think the order of things, sadly for me, was uh my kids and then my residency training and then my husband and then myself. Yeah. And um I suspect his ranking was similar, um, although he was a different part of his career. And so um When the cup and there was no time for a date night, there was no time for, you know, just hanging out. And so um, I I think what enabled us to get through that uh, is what I call money in the bank, which was the seven or eight or nine years uh, that we had before we had kids. So 85 to 94, nine years that we had before we had kids. I call that money in the bank. Mm-hmm. Uh, where we were focusing on the relationship and so we were able to make withdrawals on that uh, and then we also have good communication and honest communication and that was um, very helpful um, and here we are it's 33 years later and our son just got married and we're doing well so I feel very blessed
2: yeah congratulations and that Thank was recent. very recent yeah how was it
1: it was beautiful. <laughs> uh, I'll just share, uh, not necessarily for the podcast, but that my son and his now wife, uh, then fiance, asked my daughter to officiate. Uh, so it was beautiful to have her. She got her online minister or whatever. I got license, you. Oh, that's- uh, and she married her brother and her, his wife. So that was beautiful.
2: Beautiful. That's beautiful. And, you know, um, what, what points of self care, like, what did you employ in those six months? What did you come to realize that were so important? Let's say you have a top three. um, And I'm sure it's more than that, you know, and me having gone through my own journey of burnout, there are There's constant, even in my thoughts, I I make sure that I'm kind to myself, for example. Or, you know, there are loving thoughts that come through. Um, What was it for you? Like, what um, principles did you implement into your life so that you could uh, come out?
1: So I don't think I um, did any... uh new principles. They were principles that I was aware of and had tried to focus on in spite of everything else. But number one is relationship and community and time with family, time with friends, time with people I love
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, without feeling, oh, you know, that part of my mind is somewhere else and, oh, I should be finishing that note. I should be reading about this topic. I should be calling that patient. And I will say in private practice, there, are, you know, especially at small private practice, um, it was much harder to set boundaries than there is in a larger group practice or a university practice. There are different expectations. So that expectation that my cell phone might ring was always there, and it was nice to have six months where I was just spending an afternoon with someone. So relationships were key. Exercise has always always been really uh, valuable to me. And so I uh, spent time doing a lot of hiking. Uh, a lot of swimming, um, yoga. So all that was important. And then I don't think, well, I, I'm not sure I can limit it to three, Lita. Um, I have to- Keep
2: going, keep going, whatever feels
1: right. Sleep. sleep is a good thing. It's huge. It's um, and I think we as a society, we as physicians, we as colleagues, patients, whatever, learners, underestimate the value of sleep. So much. And uh, so sleep yeah. was great. Yeah. Uh, and I uh, was seeing a therapist and that was great too.
2: That's awesome. Yeah, sleep is my favorite pastime. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, You're, you still have young ones at home. Of course it is.
2: I do, I do. You know, and, uh, you know, he sleeps now through the night. The first five months I would wake up every hour and it was just mind numbing. The, during the day, I couldn't even form a sentence. You know, and, and then now I'm reading even more about sleep. I'm reading this book by um, God, Dr. Williams, I believe is his last name. Um, he's at UC Berkeley and it's uh, the book is called Why We Sleep.
1: Oh, I think I've seen that or read that or. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And it's great. And yes. he really goes deep into number one. Just the normal physiology of what happens when we do sleep and memory formation and cognitive function and gray matter and all of that. And then he goes into the pathologies that are affected so severely by lack of sleep, how diabetes is like tripled if we don't sleep, um, you know, dementia, like how our brains are so negatively affected by lack of sleep. And so uh, this past week, my husband and I were both on the hospital service. And um, as soon as we'd get home, like eight thirty-nine, we're, we're gone. We're in bed, like earlier than our 13-year-old. <laughs> But we needed that, you know, and in the morning we can actually function and be with patients and do all the runarounds and be able to take care of the family in the evenings. Uh, Without sleep, I don't know how we would do it. It's just impossible. And you're so dysfunctional. I feel very dysfunctional when I don't sleep. And um, I'm not able to have a meaningful interaction with myself to begin with, let alone others.
1: I think it's really hard to... um Well, let let me back up. I think it's great that you recognize you're dysfunctional when you don't sleep. I think a lot of us think, oh, I do fine on five hours. Uh, I hear that all the time from my medical students and my residents. Uh, Yeah, eight hours would be nice, but five is fine. I can get by. And uh, they're not aware of what those lack of three hours is costing them. And so really, really important and great that you recognize that.
2: Yeah. And, you know, in residency, I think you're also in this very sympathetic overdrive mode constantly where you can't shut it off. You know, even at home, you're on this, like, Ooh, you know, rat wheel really going fast um, and hypervigilant. And, you know, looking back at myself in residency, my quality of sleep, at night was not so great, especially if I was on the inpatient service. Cause in, in the back, it was always running. Did I do the right thing? Did I give the patient this? Did I keep him MPO for the procedure tomorrow? I mean, and then you wake up with these thoughts like at 2 a.m. And I would find myself checking my, you know, on, on my patients and reaching out to um, cross cover and making sure that like, oh, did the patient get blood? And just shutting that off, um, is definitely a challenge in residency i 'm not gonna make any like it's not it 's not an easy task that's for sure but it's one that's very much worth trying um, so you know one of the things that I do if i'm in that hypervigilant state is before bed i I will meditate for ten to fifteen minutes so that I can you know bring my brain waves into the alpha delta theta. And easily go into into my deep sleep because we need it so so significantly, um, but it took years, you know, and and of course my burnout as um, a beginning uh, early career attending, uh, I'm sure some of it, maybe a lot of it was due to the lack of sleep for all those years. Um, in medical school and I had a little one in medical school too. Um, my daughter was born, um, in my, before second year, I took a year off, which was wonderful, but, um, I agree with you. It, it accumulates and, and, you know, there, these little whispers that become screams later on. And if we're able to recognize them as, Hey, I feel dysfunctional. I feel a little off, not having slept or not having hydrated and not having meditated, um, And then you can diagnose yourself and be like, okay, this is what I need in this moment, you know, so that I don't get into that scream state. Um, But yeah, this is a journey.
1: (laughs) It is. And I think um, from what I'm hearing about your journey and what I know of mine, it was a journey in which it felt like a personal failing or a personal responsibility, right? It's, you know, I have to figure out how to make this work Um, There's something wrong with me if I can't do this. Um, And there was no recognition, even in 2012, 2013, as I was starting to study the field um, of how important systems issues are. And that really, um, when we're talking about burnout, when we're talking about high rates of suicide or mental health diagnoses in physicians, we're talking not about personal weaknesses, but about a system that doesn't allow us to be human.
2: Thank you for that, yes.
1: And um, our efforts on a systems level or on a long-term level to address burnout, to support resiliency, all of that has to come from the changes in which the ways in which we, changes in what we expect from our medical students, how we train them, how we train our residents and what expectations we have for faculty. Um, So for example, I was on a call earlier this week with a mom who, uh, well, with a physician who is a mom whose uh, husband is not doing well, and she has two little ones. And uh, she had two 6.45 meetings every week, wow. uh, 6.45 a.m. meetings. Oh, wow. uh, uh, and how to get the kids ready for school, get on those calls, get the kids to school. I'm, you know, it really is not humanly possible. No. And, um and that's what has to change, not, we don't have a lot of professions that expect you to be on a call at 645 in the morning, and then still be at work at seven at night.
2: No,
1: um, that's no. really not acceptable. No.
2: It's not hu- humane. It's not human, it's not humane. Um, and you know, you bring up such a beautiful point about systems, and I agree with you 100%. And at the same time, I really do see it as our responsibility to just stand up and say no to certain things and to say, these are my boundaries before 8 a.m. and after 5 p.m. when I'm on administrative duty, I will not return emails, I will not do patient care. And if it's, you know, I don't, you know, and setting those expectations for ourselves. And I think that will come in when we as physicians feel truly that we are executives because we are. Well we don't see ourselves as such, right? We always see ourselves as the the really the bottom of oh I gotta take care of all of these things versus no I am the executive and I call the shots. You know, and that that gives you a very different leverage point and different perspective in how you can push certain things forward or to say no to things. It gives you that empowerment of Yeah, I am, I am the executive. Actually, this whole system is built around me and my patient, right? This entire system, hospital system. And to have that perspective and in meetings to even say, hey, did you think about the doctors? Did you think about how, like, this affects us? Like, okay, seeing one more patient, I get it maybe for the bottom line, but is everything the bottom line? And um, we need to look at the, the humanity of it. Um, that's, that's huge. That's absolutely huge. And those limits, those um, setting those boundaries, I find is a really big part of self-care also.
1: It's a huge part. And and I work with the learners on that. We do a session on saying no and setting boundaries. But the reality is you and I can say that as faculty members and our students don't feel empowered to do that. And our residents certainly don't. Um, And I never would have set a boundary (laughs) as a resident, I'm embarrassed to say, you know, it just, there were no boundaries. And um, I'm not proud of that. I mean, I was probably the world's worst role model for wellness, which is how I ended up doing what I'm doing now. But um,
2: You're right, when you're within that system, it's
1: Right, so we have to say something more than duty hours, we have to say, you know, you're not going to do work that a scribe can do you're not going to do work that a clerk can do you're not going to do work that another member of the team is capable of you're going to do the work that requires your level of training that there's a balance between learning and service and that you have a life outside of medicine I, i believe it's germany where um the residents work 40 hour weeks period really It's an economic reason. I mean, our hospitals depend on our free resident labor or cheap resident labor.
2: Absolutely. And you know, for for in Europe, I believe it's that the seven years that they do their medical training in um, and they incorporate the medical education with the uh, practical hands-on training also, you know, you wonder if that's I think it's a better model, but they also don't have student loans. When they make it to that level, you know the the European countries all say, "Hey, you deserve this for free. If you're this motivated and this smart and this hardworking to get here and want to serve, then we'll take care of you." Um, and that's a that's a wonderful model. Now their tax system is a whole different thing, right?
1: <laughs> right, but I will also say that. Um... Financial wellness is a huge part of well-being, a huge part of resiliency, and when I talk to residents, students with hundreds of thousands of debt, uh, in debt, who are really seen as the future caregiver for their large extended family, they may be first generation college, first generation professional school, uh, and they're facing this kind of debt, they don't have the choices to set those boundaries or to say, no, I'm going to take six months off or whatever it is. And, and so medical education finance is another system issue that we need to advocate for. And I want to say that part of the resiliency piece, part of the reset piece is advocacy, knowing that, you know, maybe it didn't work for you, but you can make it better for someone else. And that's very empowering.
2: Very empowering that that's one of the things that kept me going through residency with a smile on my face because I was so involved in the resident Union. I remember yeah yeah I loved it and were able to make changes and see it and you know that was oh, that just heart work you know that kept me going um, but yeah it's you're so right advocacy, uh, it advocacy allows you to be engaged at a different level. And it gives you empowerment in return, which is um, very uh, important for feeling, feeling balanced because oftentimes we don't feel that control and advocacy gives us that control back to some does. level, you know, to some degree. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think physicians have been accused of, mm, let me back up. I, I think one reason we have the system we have is that physicians haven't always been a voice for themselves.
2: Yes. yes. Uh,
1: And, you know, it's understandable, right? We we don't have time. We don't have, but but we have to speak up if we want the system to change.
2: Yes, absolutely. And, you know, the system overwhelms you so much that it's like you're above your head with the tasks that you have to attend to. By the time you come around to want to advocate, then you don't have the energy to, right? And that, that, I see that as well. Um, But, you know, even if it's like, 10 minutes a week or in a meeting that we feel like, oh, this is infringing upon my family time and this is not okay, it's important to stand up and say, hey, like, let's look at it in a different way. And it doesn't have to be conflict driven. It can be, you know, I think a lot of us are pleasers and we want to kind of sit back and be like, well, this is what they said. This is how it's going to go. No, we have to realize that yes, our voice does matter and matters very significantly. I've, um, working with non-physician groups within the hospital system, and some outside of UNM. Um, they all say we love having physicians at the table uh, because they're so motivated, and when they have very clear visions about things and how things need to be uh, done and into what direction. Um, And people around us really appreciate our voice uh, more than we realize it. And yes, I advocate people to speak up when, when things come up.
1: And I guess the final point that I'm sure your listeners are aware of, but I just wanna make clear is it's really hard to um, give oneself permission to speak up, permission to advocate for oneself, and even permission to be kind to oneself. It feels selfish in our training. That's part of the culture that needs changing. Um, And for those who are hesitant to say, no, I really can't go to work when I'm sleep deprived, um, I think it's important to keep in mind that we know now from research across the country uh, that when we are burned out, when we are in distress, our patients suffer, their outcomes aren't as good, their care isn't as good, the communication and experience aren't as good. Um, And so if for no other reason, for your patient's sake, give yourself permission to take care of yourself.
2: Yeah, 100%. You know, I say that the greatest act of service is serving yourself first, because it's then that you can serve others the best, Um, yeah.
1: I, I 100% agree, and yet there's that small oh, little piece of myself that hasn't—I oh, yeah. haven't been able to get rid of it that. Says that's ridiculous. You have to take care of everyone else first. <laughs> uh, so that's still there, but uh, it's gotten a lot quieter.
2: It's it's deep conditioning, right? Yes. <laughs> well, this was lovely, Liz. Thank you so much for being present and um, sharing your wisdom, and your story, and your experience. Um, Maybe we can have you over in the future again.
1: I Um, would be honored. Thank you very much for this opportunity.
2: Of course. Thank you for everything that you do. You do a beautiful job. And bringing awareness has been incredible across. I see it. I feel it um, in in our uh, entire system. It's wonderful to work with you. Great. Have a great day. Thanks, Lita. Bye.
1: Bye Bye-bye.
0: Thanks for listening in on this conversation at ResetMD. If you'd like to reach out to us and continue the conversation for well-being, email us at resetmdpodcast at gmail.com.